You know, today we're beginning a new series that really is going to run through the end of this year. I'm excited about it. It's going to be a a whole bizarre uh, mix of messages. But it's entitled, The Radical Ways of God. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the church to be a little more radical than we've been. I think that it's time for us to be who God's called us to be. And uh, Jesus was so radical to what everybody around him thought. And one of the things that Jesus talked about was that the first will be last and the last will be first. He told a great story in Matthew chapter 20 about an owner of a vineyard who at the beginning of the day hired some folks to come work in the vineyard that day. As the day wore on, he needed more workers and so he hired some more in the middle of the day. And then toward the end of the day, he still needed more workers so he hired some more workers and now it came time to pay everybody who had been working. Now, apparently, there was not a union for these guys. But chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 8, says this. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard went to the foreman and said, Call in all the laborers, line them up, and pay them the same wages. (laughs) Starting with the most recent ones I hired, and finishing with the ones who worked all day. When those hired late in the day came to be paid, they were given a full day's wage. And when those who had been hired first came to be paid, they were convinced that they would receive more, but everyone was paid the standard wage. When they realized what had happened, they were offended and complained to the landowner saying, you're treating us unfairly. They've only worked for one hour while we've labored and waited all day until the scorch under the scorching sun. You've made them equal to us. The landowner replied, friends, I'm not being unfair. I'm doing exactly what I said. Didn't you agree to work for the standard wage? If I want to give those who only work for an hour equal pay, what does that matter to you? Wow. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Why should my generosity make you jealous of them? Now you can understand what I meant when I said that the first will end up last and the last will end up being first. Everyone is invited, but few are the chosen. Hard word from Jesus. Radical thinking. But it's important for us because you and I live in a land where it's all about all. No, it's about me. I mean, to the point. What do I have right here? iPhone. iPad. iBoots. Literally, We are consumed with ourselves. And we live in a culture where everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. 
And we live in a day where if you disagree with me, I don't just dislike you, I hate you. We live in a day where the spirit of Antichrist has been turned loose. But this isn't a defeated message today. This is a day to say to us as a church, it is time to rise up and to realize that many are called but few are chosen. We have been chosen and it's not about what am I going to get out of it. It is about what does my master want me to do? What's he called me to? And whatever other people have been called to or what other uh, people don't do does not matter. The issue is, where do I live and how do I live it out? How do we move from a world that's consumed with consumerism into recognizing that we have been called to be servants of the Most High God? It's not what's in it for me. It is what is in it for the kingdom of God. And today as we look at this radical way that Jesus taught, he is the one who gives us the ultimate picture of being emptied of self. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. You've heard this before. Consider the example that Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his mindset become your motivation. He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness. He's now been given the greatest of all names. The authority of the name of Jesus caused every knee to bow in reverence. Everything and everyone will one day submit to this name in the heavenly realm, in the earthly realm, and in the demonic realm. And every tongue will proclaim in every language, Jesus Christ is Lord Yahweh, bringing glory and honor to God, his Father. I don't know how that I can possibly convey this other than the Holy Spirit do it. But you and I have to find a way to grasp the full value of our position in Christ. What's going on in your life that's got you messed up right now? What has you overwhelmed? What has you in consternation? What creates anxiety in your world? Do you understand that if you want that to not control you, you have to understand who you are in Christ? You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You know what our challenge is? We are so focused on the monitor of now. We're looking at what's going on around us, our circumstances. 
We've been trained to be consumers. And so we're looking at what is it that I need right now? What is it that would make my world better? What would make me happier? What would make me more fulfilled? Why do people not understand me? Why do they not treat me right? Why am I going through all that I'm going through? Stop it! That doesn't define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. And that definition has to come back to this understanding that you also don't strive to gain or maintain that position. How many of you ever climbed a ladder at work? Or in some other area, you tried to move into a nicer neighborhood? You wanted more affluence? So you found ways to manipulate to get what you wanted. Have you ever met the people coming down the ladder you stepped on to get up? Happens all the time in our culture. Trying to get it ourselves. And what you and I have to understand as believers, our position in Christ is not something I have to work to get to. It's already been done when he went to Calvary. It's a completed work. It's already been fully paid for. It's already been fully delivered. I just have to step into it and be ready to walk in it. And when we begin to understand that, then we can understand how Jesus could do what he did. Because he already knew he was fully God. There was no question about that. So he didn't look at God and say, why am I having to go to the world? He was so one with God that he knew that he was to come. Now when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he understood the gravity of what he was getting ready to do. But it was never, God, how do I talk you out of this? It was him coming to the reality that he was getting ready to become the sin of the world. I don't know how to describe this to you, but, but what's the worst pain you've ever experienced? What's the most fearful you've ever been? What's been the most challenging circumstance in your life? If all of those were piled on you at the same time and then multiply it times every person who's ever lived who is ever going to live, that's when you could begin to understand what Jesus was embracing when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was getting ready to have the sin of the entire world placed upon him. And yet, he did it because the vulnerability that he was allowing to happen in his life was going to open up the opportunity to redeem the entire world. So, whatever you're, I shouldn't say this, whatever you're gritching and griping about right now, stop it and start thanking God that He counts you worthy to be vulnerable. You want the mind of Christ? That's where it starts. It starts in the place where everything is not what it should be, but you recognize who you are in God. And because Jesus knew that, then he was able to obey God and fulfill the greatest kingdom business that's ever been accomplished, which is the redemption of us. And what it did, it caused him to be so open. And I believe this, the Garden of Gethsemane really wasn't Jesus trying to talk God out of going to the cross. 
Jesus had been living on earth for 33 years. He understood all the things that we look at that appeal to our humanness. And he had experienced that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what he was doing? He was totally emptying himself of the human self. Because any part of your capacity that's filled with self reduces the capacity for the fullness of God. And Jesus knew that when he went to the cross, he was going to need the fullness of God in him to take the weight of the sin of the world. You and I have to keep emptying ourselves of self-capacity so that we can then live out the full endorsement and authority of the life of Christ that's inside of you. You see, God has endorsed you. That's why Jesus could empty himself totally and yet have such a triumph. was because when you get empty of self, the full capacity of God can be released. Because it's already inside you. We have this treasure in these clay pots. The life of Christ is in you. The question is, is the life of Christ at full capacity in you? Or have you squished it down in a corner somewhere because you're consumed with what this current world is? I can't tell you how important this is. What we just prayed a few minutes ago is important. Do not mishear or misunderstand what I'm getting ready to say to you. It's important that we vote properly according to the Word of God Tuesday. But church, it's not about politics. The church for the last 50 years has tried to control American politics. And where has it gotten us? It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to be the church. And the life of Christ to swell up inside of us. And when we do, the politics will work out. When we begin to get so serious about the things of God that the world begins to look and say, they're not just another political force. They can then begin to see the authority of God that will change everything. What I just said to you is not a contradiction of terms. It's a proper alignment of how we need to function. It's for us to function out of the very heart and nature of who God is, not out of what we understand that's going to preserve American life. And when we begin to understand that, then we can begin to live out what it is to be emptied of self so that we become last. We become the least. Because then God can do everything. There's a healthy view and progression that involves both leading and serving. We get caught sometimes in this trap of leaders can be extremely narcissistic people. Some of, the, some of the people who've been greatest leaders in our world have been extremely narcissistic, very unlikable people. But they've been strong leaders. On the other hand, we have developed this attitude that if a person is a servant, then that means you're just kind of over here apologizing for everything and trying to just not be in anybody's way and just, I'm worthless, I'm nothing. Both of those are wrong. 
God wants us to be people who We're going to do it anyway. So how do we get this healthy view and progression to both lead and serve at the same time? Well, great example is the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 30. There's just been a real royal upset because on the way into the temple, Peter and John healed the guy that had been there for all those years that everybody saw when they were going in, and now it messed with everything because he's healed. So it really has the chief leaders of the Jews upset. And what does it do to the church? Well, they just determine we're supposed to do more of what we're supposed to be doing. And verse 30, 30 says this, To God, stretch out your hand of power through us to heal and to move in signs and wonders by the name of your holy son, Jesus. As they prayed, the earth shook beneath them, causing the building they were in to tremble. Each one of them was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they proclaimed the word of God with unrestrained boldness. All the believers were one in mind and heart. Selfishness was not a part of their community, for they shared everything they had with one another. The apostles gave powerful testimonies about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great measures of grace rested upon them all. Some who owned houses or lands sold them and brought the proceeds before the apostles to distribute to those without. Not a single person among them was needy. Those New Testament apostles become the great example to us of what it means to be empty of self. And then what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray for there to be a fresh fullness of the Holy Spirit in every one of us. How many of you know that the being filled with the Holy Spirit is an experience, but it's not just an experience, it's a way of life. If you can look back and say, well, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and I remember and I can tell you what that was like, and you haven't been filled since, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You're on dry. God wants us to live life where daily we're allowing the Holy Spirit to refresh us. And that's exactly what the New Testament church did. They emptied themselves of themselves, but they allowed the Holy Spirit to fill them. The same example Jesus did in what we read in Philippians chapter 2. And as that began to happen, then God began to demonstrate who he is. There was healing, there were signs and wonders, and God does amazing things. I was in a hospital room this week, prayed for someone who was getting ready to go on three days a week dialysis. Got a phone call the next day after we had been praying, and they don't need dialysis, their kidneys are working again. That should be the norm with the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are willing to believe that God can do great and mighty things. And that our focus 
and that we live in the power of demonstration of the word of God. What is it that's going on in your life? <clears throat> what is this that's challenging you? What does the word of God say about it? How are you living it in light of what the word of God says? And how do you let the word of God become such a powerful focus that nothing else can get in the way of what God wants to do? It's another thing. Biblical unity. The church is so divided in our day, and it grieves the Spirit of God. I'm going to tell you something. Denominations, man's structure were not God's intention for the church. It's what happens when we forget that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. We forget what Jesus said. And we forget that God gives to everyone according to what he desires. And God doesn't say, well, I like this group over here better than that group. God help us to be free. I'm excited that on January 7th, and we'll be talking more about this, the 24-7 prayer room that's going to be at the electric works is going to open up. And 24-7, there's going to be prayer that's going to be taking place. God, help us to become a city that is set on fire for God because we begin to come together with a sense of unity of His Spirit and His purpose. And as a church that we look and we say, it's not about mine Everything is God's. Whatever I have, it belongs to God. And I have anything that God wants, I'll give him. I want his ministry to be fulfilled. I want it to be accomplished. I, I have been very moved this year by the whole Operation Christmas Child. And uh, Corbin, I'm grateful for all you do to give us leadership and Melissa and the whole crew. It's just a blessing. The reason I want us to do a thousand boxes is not to say, whoopee, we hit a new number. It's because it's a thousand opportunities for people to hear about Jesus. And I, I'm so pleased with, with the videos we've been able to see that have showed so many different aspects. And today, how do you not be moved when you see that children who can't hear have still received the gospel? And when you saw that uh, child uh, signing about Jesus. It's just powerful. What would happen if we begin to look and say, God, what do you want to do in us? How can we make our lives so centered on you? You and I are a part of a culture that so lives for itself. How do we begin to live differently? How do we begin to reflect differently? How do we begin to have testimonies of resurrection power? And we watch the great measures of God's grace as we begin to live generously as stewards of the resources God's given us. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to go sell your house and give the money to the poor unless God tells you to. 
What I am telling you is let it be God's resources. What does God want to do with it? How can you find a way to be engaged in ways you haven't been? How can we again make the things of God the highest priority in our life? Scripture that haunts me and has for the last two or three years, and you hear me periodically say this, is a scripture that says, in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Heard that all my life. What I never fully understood was that it says they will love God. I always thought they didn't like God. That's not what it says. It says they love God, but they love pleasure more. What's your priority? What are you going to do this week to make you feel better while the world goes to hell? Pastor, be positive. I'm positive the world's going to hell. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to make a difference? and stretched before. Where are we going to begin to say there's things that we've been doing that aren't God's priorities? We live in a day where there's more opportunity for our kids to play sports and do anything they want to, and yet only 4% of the children who are considered Gen Z, mid-20s and younger, even know who Jesus is. Did you just hear what I said? Four percent. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to begin to let God change how we live? You say, Pastor, you're messing my week up. I've been having a pretty good week, and now you're talking this nonsense, and you're disturbing me. You're supposed to make me feel good. Well, there's another scripture about that. In the last days, they'll have teachers that they'll heap to themselves that have itching ears. I don't think I'm one of those. How do we let God do what he wants to do? And I think it's if we begin to understand what it means to live humbly and yet confident in the sonship we've been giving so that we can release holistic kingship Authority. What do I mean by that? Well, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, and then verse 9. So keep coming to him who is the living stone, though he was rejected and discarded by men, but chosen by God, and is priceless in God's sight. Come and be his living stones, who are continually being assembled into a sanctuary for God. For now you serve as holy priests, offering up spiritual sacrifices that he readily accepts through Jesus Christ. But you are God's chosen treasure 
priests who are kings, a spiritual nation set apart as God's devoted ones. He called you out of darkness to experience his marvelous light, and now he claims you as his very own. He did this so that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. This starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. You know, when we were in Israel, I'll show you a picture of one of these days of, of uh, a close-up of the wall, the outer yard of Temple Mount, where these huge rocks were put in place that nobody can tell you for sure how they do it because they're so big, they're so heavy, and yet they were hewn out of bigger rock into these wonderful dimensions of rectangle that are stacked on top of each other. And so after all these thousands of years, and as much as fallen down, those are still in place. We were there. It's a part of that wall that's the western wall where people go and in the cracks between the stones, they put their prayers because that's as close as they can get to where the temple was originally. But when a building was built in that kind of construction, you had to start. And the starting point for construction in what Peter's talking about is what was known as the cornerstone, which was a perfectly squared stone that was placed in a corner that then the building was going to go from that corner and then the other sides would be built. But the starting point was the cornerstone and everything else was aligned with what that cornerstone is. So that the building is perfectly squared as long as all the rest of the stones are laid in line with the cornerstone. And when you go down that western wall, it's a very straight line that you walk down. And when you look, Peter said to us, Jesus is the cornerstone of the house of God. And he says, you're called to be living stones laid by the cornerstone. In other words, the house of God, the body of Christ, means that the cornerstone possesses these living stones that are you and me, and that we are fitly joined together, placed and built on the cornerstone to fulfill what God's purpose is. I want you to think about this. Being part of what God wants to do is not optional. Is who you are. What would happen if someone was building a building with this kind of construction and they get about the third row up and about halfway down the wall from the cornerstone and suddenly a stone that was supposed to go in the wall said, I'm not going to do it. I don't like where I've been placed in the wall. And if you don't put me over in this part of the wall, I'm not going to be in the wall. Walls don't do that, do they? So who do we think we are? That we can pick and choose? 
whether we're going to do what God wants us to or not? Are you going to be part of God's building? Are you going to be a maverick stone laying off to the side? I don't know how to tell you this, but you need to be a part of the body of Christ. We need each other. We need to work together. We need to be built together. And we are literally living stones. And he says, this is the treasure. You're called to be a spiritual nation. This is what America needs right now more than anything else. Please don't misunderstand me. I always worry after I do what I'm doing today that people will say, well, he isn't really a lover of Jesus because he's not a good Republican because he would tell us that voting is the most important thing we can do. Don't misinterpret what I'm telling you. It's none of your business whether I'm a Republican or not. But you probably don't have to think too long to figure it out. But let me tell you something. While we need to be good American citizens, it's time for the church to raise our standard higher and put far above what we are proud of to be an American. Next week, we're going to honor our veterans. It's an important thing. It's important to have a heritage that we have. But it's far more important to know that the treasure is being a part of God's holy nation. And God's holy nation is made up of people from all over the world. People who love God. Do you know where some of the strongest churches in the world are today? South America and Africa. While we're struggling with things that have been traditional values that you're supposed to biblically believe... They're marching forward because they don't have the struggles that we have in our churches in deciding about human sexuality because the Bible already defined it and they accept it. God help us to become the spiritual nation God's called us to be. That we begin to say, God, how do I prioritize this? Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not telling you not to, don't go cancel your vacation because I said what I did about pleasure today. But I will tell you this, if vacation is more important to you than things of God, cancel your vacation. Get your priorities where they need to be. Make the kingdom of God the first priority. How are you building the kingdom of God? Maybe there's creative ways God wants to use you that you haven't seen yet. Maybe some of the things we've always done need to be done differently. And that's okay. Because if it's going to do what God wants, that's what matters at the end of the day. But how am I preparing myself to be where God wants me to be right now for what God has called me to do and what He's called me to be? And so that we begin to be this treasure of a spiritual nation that are both priests and kings. You see, the priest role in the Old Testament and the king role were two separate people. But in God's kingdom, the priests who serve, who bring us into the presence of God through an attitude of serving and an attitude of being there to serve are also kings because we are a part of covenant and kingdom relationship with God. The covenant relationships mean that Jesus is the great high priest. And that I follow his example from Philippians 2 so that I live out a priestly role of serving the church and the world with whatever God wants done. 
But that I also understand that Jesus, who became as the greatest priest, the greatest high priest of all times, Jesus humbled himself and went to the cross so that he could fulfill the priestly duty of forgiving sins. And because he paid that sacrifice, now I am called in commission with him to become a minister of the gospel, and you are too. It's not because I have pastor by my name. It's because I have Jesus in my heart. And if you have Jesus in your heart, that's the key. That's the secret. And when we begin to live as priests, then what we also understand, Jesus is not just the greatest servant of all, but he is the King of kings, Lord of lords. And that's where this whole thing he talked about comes. The last shall be first. Not because you put yourself there, but because you submit yourself in sonship to God, and then God exalted Jesus and gave him a name that's above every name. And when I go out and I'm facing all the difficulties of this world, I just stand close to Jesus and say, I'm with him. He's King of kings, Lord of lords, and he lives inside of me. So that means that I have the authority of the greatest king that has ever ruled and the king that's going to continue to rule throughout eternity. And when we begin to understand that, it changes everything. So what are we going to do about it? It was in 1983 that Ted Obrook had a word from God that says, I've called you both meaning he and his wife Sue, as an apostle and an evangelist, not just in your country, but also in your wife's country. They met when Ted was a young man serving our country in Cambodia. And Sue, who is actually from Laos, had come as a refugee to Cambodia after all the horrible things that were happening in Laos in those years. And they met. They got married. Came back to the United States became pastors of Foursquare Church over in Illinois. Great pastors. He was a great farmer. Just amazing people. And yet, God had put this thing in their heart in the word that he had spoken. And he didn't say just in the U.S., he said in your wife's country. So in 1996, 13 years later, God began to shift Ted's heart to begin to say, I want you to serve as a missionary. There was literally a church in Decatur, Illinois, that had sold a television station and had a lot of money. And they said to him, we believe we're supposed to give you this to go do what you're starting to do. But you have to do it by a certain date or we're going to find something else to do with the money. And so it came down and it was coming to the wire. And the problem was Sue, who had had been in horrible atrocities as a child, didn't want to go back. And one day, she noticed, laying on the dresser, a letter that she had written to God before they ever got married. And how it got on top of the dresser, they don't know. But in the letter, she had said, whatever you call my husband to in the ministry, I'll go with him and I'll be a part. And the story goes, when I've heard Ted tell it, that he came home that day and she said, we're going to Cambodia. And he was going, what? Because she's been so opposed to it. She said, 
I have a contract with God. And so in 1999, they started for Children of Promise Ministries. They went to Cambodia to plant churches. Whole philosophy of missions in, in most denominations, including Foursquare, is planting churches that will become indigenous and reproduce other churches. So orphanages were not part of the game plan, except that shortly after they were there, their first convert had somebody put two small children on their doorstep from parents who had AIDS. And they brought those two children to Ted and Sue and said, you're Christians, what are you going to do with these children? And out of that, the ministry began. They took what money they had, they bought a brothel, turned the dance hall into the worship center, and it had a three-story hotel, and that became the first orphanage. Today, it's over 106 of those homes. They've reached over 20,000 children. There's currently 3,000 with them. You just saw a few weeks ago Shannon on this platform, who God's raised up to work with them. Shannon's story is remarkable because she should have never been able to go overseas with her medical history. But look what God has done. Emily Platter that was here with us served some time with them in Cambodia. Just recently, Sue and Shannon went to Seoul, Korea, to the huge church there that uh, Pastor Cho founded. And Sue, when she was younger, said that God showed her she would stand and speak in that church. Here she is now in her mid-70s. Doesn't even like to travel anymore. And they went. Interestingly, of all these gatherings of World Pentecostal churches, she was the only woman. The rest of them were all men. Dear God, help us to relieve the, release the daughters. And God gave her a word to speak. And it sounds like she messed with some people in what she said. But one of the gentlemen came up to her afterwards and asked her to pray over him. Afterwards, Ted Vell, who heads uh, Foursquare Missions, told her that he leads one of the largest Pentecostal denominations in the world. Here, this young girl, who was a refugee from the killing fields of Laos, nobody. The last. God's raised up to be the first. If she is willing to do that, what's wrong with you and me? Father, get a hold of my heart. Help me see the world the way you do. God, let it not be about what I can do or what is in it for me, but God, help me to lay it down just like Jesus did. And God, would you do that in every person who calls LifeBridge their church? And God, in these days that are ahead of us, would you take us to places we've never dreamed of going before? And would you cause us to begin to come to the forefront of your purposes, raised up, for your purposes, so that we, who may be one of the least churches in this city, in this nation, in this world, can have a powerful impact because the name of Jesus 
has been exalted and we are full capacity on. Do then in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, but take this home and be disturbed by it for several days. When you go home today, you open the refrigerator and you can get whatever you want out of it. You can go to the pantry. Just remember there's people that can't. This week, when you get in your car and you can go where you want to go, Remember, there's people who have no way to get where they need to go. And I'm not talking about creating some kind of false guilt trip. I'm not saying go give your car to somebody else this week. What I am saying is ask God what he wants you to do. And then do it. And we will watch God do great and mighty things to his glory. Because as we're willing to become last, his glory will place us first for his kingdom purposes. Bless you.